Hey folks, if you will find Psalm 42 verse 1 as uh, Brother Joseph passes out the copies, y'all find Psalm 42 verse 1. Good to see everybody. Um, in Psalm 42, verse 1, uh, the psalmist writes, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Uh, verse of Scripture in so many different uh, translations of the Scripture. We've read this so many times. Many of us have, have memorized this in places like Bible school. And so it's, it's, it's wonderful to, to take on a passage that's so, that's so familiar. Uh, we've read it. Let's pray. And then we will we'll get started. Father God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to come and to study your word. I pray, Father God, that tonight is a, is a gospel night, Father God. If there's something, God, that just... there's any place, God, my heart is drawn all the time now, Father God, is that, that desire to want to preach not just the gospel, Father God, but about the gospel. To, to reaffirm for the church, Father God, the importance of the gospel. Lord, I love you, God, and I want to be able to... To say these things, God, with passion and with power, but also want to be able to say them with understanding and with a knowledge, Father, that I'm, I'm oftentimes as much in violation of these things as anyone in this room or anyone in the church, Lord. I know, God, that my faith is, is as I am, Father. God is deeply imperfect. And so, Father God, for that reason, I know that I'm, I'm here to preach, but I'm also here to listen myself and that these words today have, have, have impacted me, Father God, and I pray they have the same impact, Father, today upon your people. I love you, God, and I praise you, God, and I ask you more than anything else that we would come together and affirm tonight, Father God, the Bible in our hearts, God, in our lives, and affirm that gospel, Father God, that saves men's souls. That's the reason we gather, Father, and I pray, Lord, that today, that tonight, Lord, that's the reason why, Lord, that this group is gathered, for the sake and the glory of the gospel. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. <coughs> Okay, um, in Psalm 42, verse 1, the psalmist writes, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Um, I, I thought about that and I said, This is, I'm, I'm going to be too, too just, you know, whimsical about this. But to me, this verse sounds like what biblical uh, Christian worship is supposed to be about. This idea of longing for God, this expression of that, of that deep love for God. I, I know it's hard to talk about these things. Um, I think because we don't, maybe we're not as in touch with them as we ought to be. Life and the decades and decades and heartbreaks and, and victories and challenges and tragedies and all those things ought to, for us, build up that, that love we have for God. We're more loving and more appreciative toward our God because our faith has had to be so durable. It's had to... But persevere through so <coughs> through so many things, and so I, I read this as this is about that, that intense love for God that I think all of us want. At least I'll be honest with you. When I first came to to, to faith in Christ, it's what I wanted. I I was turning my back on the world. I was turning my back on a way of being that was the only way I'd ever known, and I wanted God to take the place of all that. I wanted an intensity and a burning passion. <laughs> and I know for a lot of us, we wanted that too, and it didn't last, did it? We had that mountaintop experience, but we found that we lived our lives in the valleys. That we lived our life in a place that's much cooler 
that's less fiery than on those instances in which we embrace the cross for the first time. And, and so I wanted this depth of emotion. But I want this, I'm realizing now, as I prayed over this, is that that's the depth of emotion I want to have. And that I can, it's possible for me to have a kind of passion for God, a kind of emotion for God, that is that does not involve the gospel. That it, it's it's... I guess I'm trying to explain something that's esoteric, so y'all bear with me. So much so that my faith for God, brother, becomes about me and my needs. What I need Him for this time. That my faith becomes utilitarian. I'm poor, therefore my faith is enriched because I need God so much. I'm sick because my faith is enriched therefore I, because I need God so much. I'm grieving, therefore my faith is enriched because I need God so much. Not that my faith in God and my love for God is not enriched by those events, but those events unto themselves really just bring help and hope to whom? To me. Never is my gaze outward in that kind of worship. Never do I worry about what Brother Joseph needs or what Brother Mike needs or what Ashley needs. As long as my needs are being met, my heart's being fed, I'm being encouraged. I'm finding those illuminated steps that get me through the, the kind of tortuous path that I'm having to walk at this time. I don't really care that this person or that person or the other person comes to that saving knowledge. In the end, if I get sick and if I die, but through my sickness and death, the gospel is illuminated and people are glorified, that is victory, right? That is, that is victory by every letter of the, of the Bible. That is victory. My death has now had meaning. An intense meaning. A, a fruitful meaning. And so, so for me to love God, there is but one, and, and show that love and demonstrate that love for the world, there is but one real outlet and it's always the gospel. It's the heart of missions and evangelism and worship and preaching, teaching, everything we do. It's always about the gospel because the gospel is our great hymn of worship. We, we talk about it all the time, don't we, in church? One of those things we say is, is that everything we do is supposed to lift up the gospel. If it's, a, if it's any event we host, if it's anything we do, it's supposed to lift up the gospel. If it doesn't lift up the gospel, then it's by definition what? Extraneous, right? It's unnecessary. Something for us and not for him. And so as we, as I, I start with this one verse, I talk about panting for God, my soul longing for God. The only way to long for him is what? It's through the gospel. It's the only way. In my private life, I don't long for God if the gospel is not intricate to my private life. For my public life, I don't long for God if the gospel is not intricate to my, pub, to my public life. I don't really long for him in a biblically defined way. I can still love him and adore him, but I'm really loving him and adoring him because I need him. Like I said, that's always going to be an aspect. I'm always going to be broken. I'm always going to be fragile. I'm always going to be coming apart at the ends, right? Always going to be. I'm always going to need him. And everything I do, I'm going to need him. My job as a believer is to focus, is to in some ways brush away that need and focus my life on what? The gospel. So if God decides not to meet those needs this time, the gospel is still exalted. Now, let me talk more <coughs> than I already have. 
The most God-honoring and exhilarating worship is that supplication that exalts God by way of the declaration of His gospel. The purest form of worship is worship that exalts God through the gospel. When Christ is honored as Savior and Lord of the entire world by way of the precious good news, then the whole magnificence of the eternal plan of the everlasting Father is magnified for the world to see by way of His people. When we worship God... Excuse me, with a commitment and dedication to the gospel that is an outward commitment dedication, not an intellectual commitment dedication, but a real commitment dedication. We are plugging ourselves in, despite our problems, into the manifestation of the gospel for the world to see. Missions, evangelism, everything we do. Everything we do. Then we magnify Christ. When we don't do that, Christ is diminished. <clears throat> for the theme and reality of our longing for God are to preach and teach and believe the gospel. Preach, teach, believe the gospel. And, and these, are, these are my words. I should probably shouldn't spend a whole lot of time tearing them apart. Preaching what we do right now, understanding that preaching is interactive. It's me preaching, you listening. It's me preaching, you hearing, you taking on board and applying to your lives, going forth to duplicate what we talk about here. It's not your affirmation in that or the nod of a head. It's your affirmation in the adjustment of a course of a life. That's preaching. Preaching fails if the first part happens, the gospel is declared, and the second part doesn't. Preaching will never be my thing. It will always be our thing. And I can do poorly, you can apply rightly, and the sermon's a success. I can preach like Spurgeon. You can doze and the sermon fails. Because preaching is two ways. It's communication. It's me to you. Or more, more importantly, it's the Holy Spirit to you by way of me. Teaching. Every single place we teach. Every single place we teach. This is... Thank you so much, brother. Thank you so much. Every single place we teach, without exception, every place we teach affirms the same thing. Now, I'm not going to tell you in your class what to teach. The Holy, that's the Holy Spirit's job. All I expect you to do is pray and study and then go forth armed with the truth. And you know what will happen? You will, you will find that we are remarkably on the same page. Without ever comparing notes. I hear it all the time. We just talked about this. I have no clue what anybody talked about in their Sunday school class. No clue. But it happens all the time. Why? Because the Holy Spirit guides it. The only, only point of conviction for us is we're gospel-centered about it. I mean, you can study through a book. You can study through, through, uh, study through doctrine. It doesn't matter. It'll be gospel-centered if you surrender yourself to do what? To focus just on the gospel. And God will do the rest. And believe the gospel. Now I say this all the time. And I know for, for those of us in this room. And you know, we will make the assumption that everyone in this room is a, is, a, is a born again believer. It's so easy to do in churches. It's probably not true in most places. But we'll make the assumption. There's a giant difference folks. Between believing that the gospel is true for salvation. And continuing to live your life through that belief for the rest of your days. 
I don't mean the, the instantaneous instant in which you move from darkness to light by way of the good news, by the way of God enabling, enabling belief so that you could become a child of His. I don't mean that. What I mean is the rest of our days, we live like we believe it's true. Um, as you know, one of the guys who's apostating said, and something we've talked about, I've said in this pulpit so many times, um, we can talk about that, for instance, we believe in the doctrine of hell. But we don't live like we believe in the doctrine of hell. Because if we lived like we believed in the doctrine of hell, we would be some very desperate people for those people around us who do not believe the gospel, right? If we absolutely knew, absolutely knew something terrible was going to happen to someone, we would go to the greatest lengths possible to warn them, right? We would never be satisfied. Talk about skipping work. You'd skip work for a year if it took to do it. Because the life is more important than even what you can earn in a year, isn't it? Or 10 years or 100 years. We do whatever it takes. See, that, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. Is that we can affirm the gospel intellectually. But our lives are a public vote on whether or not we really believe the gospel. I can talk about the gospel all I want, but if I live every single day like it's not true, then guess what? What I'm telling everybody around me is the opposite, right? Is belief directing the events of my life? Is it? That, that would be the question. How can we do this? First, we must pray diligently and never give up praying for the blessings of faithfulness to the call to preach and witness to roll down upon us. We're going to never give up praying that God is going to invigorate our ministries. I'm not just telling you guys to go out. You've just got to go out and share the gospel with 10 people this week. Boy, I'm, I'm an old youth pastor. We used to do that mess all the time. And you know what? There'd be the one kid who'd share with 100 people, and there'd be the most of them who were terrified of everybody, including their own parents, and they weren't sharing with anybody. Because see, what we did was we, we, we made this stupid youth pastor assumption that you can, just, you can just be man enough or woman enough to go out and share the, the glorious gospel. We know what you can be man enough or woman enough to go out and share the glorious gospel. But God didn't mean for us to do it that way. He gave us the comfort of the Holy Spirit to invigorate this, to bring power and energy and vitality to our, to our worship. So what I'm going to say is this, is that if anybody in this room is going to share the gospel, the first step is to do what? Pray, pray, pray for the Holy Spirit to, to bring power to this. It doesn't mean you'll have a responsibility to share the gospel. We all do. The Bible's abundantly clear. It means that, that God gave us, the, God gave us the, the command to do this, but he also gave us at the same time the power to do this. He didn't mean for us to go out. You know what? And the reason why I would, I would, I would really be, be funny about this is because you're always going to be in the group with that one person that's just, man, it's not even the gospel. They need to get themselves some Amway and make a fortune. Because they will talk to anybody. They do not care. They're just that kind of, it's a personality. Now, no offense, those people can fake you out too. Because they have so much internal, inherent confidence, they don't necessarily have to believe what they're talking about, do they? They make great con artists. 
I'll tell you what, you take that meek, mousy little person who's, who's get, been given power and vitality by the Holy Spirit, that person shares the gospel, that, that's, that's uniquely genuine, isn't it? Because they're doing what God has led them to do. We want to be Holy Spirit dependent when we do this. You know, <clears throat> the Lord instructed us to pay for to pray for unbelievers. Uh, in this way, as he stated in Luke 10, 2, and he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So there is an a, for for this harvest, for this 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 reaping of souls by the gospel through God's people. There is an intentional work of God in doing this. Pray to the Lord Harvest to send out laborers. We're praying now that we are what? Sent out. Now, some of the sending out may just simply be by way, by intellectual and, and emotional means, by way of the preaching of the gospel. By way of the sharing of, of, the, of the Great Commission. Or, or the challenge that's present in Acts 1.8. Or the command to preach the gospel of the entire world in Mark chapter 16. That is enough in many ways. But there's something intentional about God getting a hold of people and sending them out into the midst of a, of a dangerous world. Whether it be the mission field or just to those people they know and they love. Something about that. Next, as submitted believers to Christ, it is our duty to respond to what he calls and to encourage, plead with the world to put aside their will for that of Christ. <coughs> Paul inspires us with his words in 2 Timothy 2.10, which say, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So we are going to um, we're going to plead with the world to put aside their will. Now, I think, that once again, those are my words, and, and I, but I want to be very clear with them, and that is that we are doing that. And what I mean is this, and please, please understand, is that when you've gone out in this world and you've shared the gospel, most people are going to reject what you have to say. Now, Russell, if you haven't, you haven't been to the right places, have you? I will never forget in my lifetime preaching in Ohio years and years ago, a decade ago, and a guy read the paper through the whole sermon. In front of him. See, we can imagine Bible Belt. We can't imagine that. North of the Mason-Dixon. Nobody noticed but me. Got a house full of people. Nobody noticed. This guy just wasn't having any of it. He didn't want any of it. So he hid behind the paper. Now, here's the reality. The reality is this. Is that even down here... They may sit still and, and be good and know what they're supposed to do and stand when they're supposed to stand and sit when they're supposed to sit and sing and do all those things. It doesn't make them believers, right? The trappings of the church don't make anybody a believer. Going to church, to the service, doesn't make anybody a believer, does it? It doesn't. So, so people fake you out down here. Well, at least we know where that guy stands, don't we? He made it abundantly clear. His flag was, I want nothing to do with your cross or your good news concerning the cross. Challenge accepted. Go back. And go back. And talk and witness and plead. And don't quit. And don't be discouraged. Because somebody's mean about it. 
Because anybody in this room who's done that enough has seen the walls break down, haven't we? It's always, it's always inspiring, but it's also so often to me in my life um, difficult to hear when you hear the joy but also the pain in someone's life when they say, you know, I prayed for 30 years for my dad. 30 years, decades. You spent decades of your life praying for somebody. Decades of your life sharing the gospel. And then it finally worked. It was that blessed moment in which God enabled belief. What did he need for that person to do? Plea. Keep going back. Never give up. Never give up. Finally, the Lord calls to men and women through various means, and, and it is time that the uh, <coughs> through various means, and it is um, time that the unbelieving world hears and responds. God promises the priceless fruit of the cross, redeeming love for those who will believe today and not harden their hearts. He writes through Micah in Micah seven eighteen, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. For the remembrance of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. So God in, in Micah defines his approach to this better than, than I can. God's words speak for themselves. Who's a God like him who pardons iniquity? I think I've said this before. I, I hate to repeat myself, but I do want to kind of connect this to humanity. And I'm the, I'm the humanity I know the most about. It wouldn't do for me to be God. You know how many chances I give people? One. One. You know why? Because for the first time in my life I had some power. I've never had any power. Ever, under any circumstances. God knows me too well. He doesn't give me any. I get zero. Even in places where ceremonially I kind of have a little bit, I have no power whatsoever. Y'all all know me too well about here. I got no power here. I'm the last person whose opinion ever moved anything. Ever. God knows. You let me have power over life and death? All of a sudden, I'm a giant bundle of offense. I'm waiting for somebody to offend me. Waiting for it. Because I am, I am fragile and I am frail, but I'm also petty and I'm also vindictive. And God is none of these things. Lost sinners say no to God a thousand times. And in his time, he still forgives them. By way of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he still forgives a lost sinner that has seditiously and treasonously thumbed their noses at the gospel. There are deathbed confessions and there are deathbed conversions. I wouldn't bet on it for anybody. I wouldn't bank on that. Understand? But God embraces embraces people in his love and in his glory for no apparent reason. People who have said no to him a thousand times. Why does he do that? Because he, there's no God like him who pardons iniquity and passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. If I were God, I would retain my anger forever. I would be mean and I would be hateful and I would throw lightning bolts at people. If that's really a thing. You know why I do it? Because I'm a human. And I make a terrible God. I make a terrible God. Because God's not anything like me at all. He does not retain his anger forever. And he delights in steadfast love. 
People hate him. God wants to love them. Does he, have, does he have hatred? Yes. Does he have anger? Yes. Is his wrath perfect? Absolutely. Is his justice something that no one wants to fall into? No doubt about that. But Micah is abundantly clear. He delights in, in steadfast love. Because who God is. Look, through these imperatives, the gospel then provides two strict demands which are implicit in its message. First, the gospel must be responded to by the individual. No matter what anybody believes about Reformed theology, whatever, it does not matter. Each and every individual must respond to the gospel. Our Lord preaches in Luke 6, 47-48, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundations on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. An exclusive offer of hope in a world that is dying from the ravages of sin. The gospel must be heard and believed by any person who will be saved. Now, that, doctrinally speaking, is a pretty scary notion. But it is absolutely true. What is the only way by which any single person can be saved? By way of the gospel, right? The Bible is abundantly clear, isn't it? So a tribesman in equatorial Africa who's never heard the name of Jesus, a, uh, a child in a tenement in Chicago who's never heard the name of Jesus, an honest, hardworking farmer in China who's never heard the name of Jesus, each and every one of them depends on what for, for salvation? The gospel and the gospel alone. The Bible gives no avenues for salvation outside of who? Outside of Christ. Christ is the, it was, it is the living embodiment of salvation. I know, and, and I know what we always think. We always think the same thing. We think, oh my goodness, gracious love. God, it would be so cruel for God to, to, to toss into hell some person that never even heard the name of Jesus. Now, I would say this to you. God has tossed into hell countless millions who have never heard the name of Jesus. It is doubtless that this has happened. And his actions are absolutely right and absolutely true. They are just as much as he is just. All God has done is punish people for what they have absolutely done, right? I'm sent to hell for what reason? For my sins. The things I have legitimately committed. There's no doubt about that. And God has provided a way of salvation. The way of salvation is in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. What I would say first and foremost, without even going to, for instance, Romans chapter 1, which clearly talks about this, what I would say is this. If we're so upset about somebody in a tenement in Chicago not hearing the gospel or some farmer in China or someone in equatorial Africa, a hunter in equatorial Africa has never heard the gospel, then the onus is on us. Who knows? We know the gospel. I would ask you this much, what in the world are we doing about it? We're so troubled by the fact that there's somebody out there who's never heard the name of Jesus and that they might die without him. I'm here to tell you, why am I so troubled about that when i got a guy across the street and I've been in church since, since Easter a hundred years ago 
He ain't heard the gospel either. Why am I so concerned about that person in Equatorial Africa and not concerned about the guy across the street? Both of them are dying without the only message that will save them. And that's the gospel. The command is on who to tell them? It's on us. It's on somebody else. It's not on God to work out some sneaky plan so, so this person over here doesn't have to respond to the gospel, but all these others over here do. It's not for God to somehow not have integrity and, and break His own commandments. It's not some incredible... It's, it's an incredible miracle that men and women are saved. There's no doubt about that. But the way by which men and women are saved, the the the... The transmission of the gospel by word of mouth to other people is something that human beings can do, right? We can do that. If there's a tribesman in Equatorial Africa who's never heard the gospel, what it means is that people who've heard the gospel need to do what? Go to Equatorial Africa. In the very same way, if there's a guy across the street from me who's a hateful old cuss, who's never embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, then guess what? I need to go across the street and tell this guy about the gospel. Because God's told me to. It's abundantly clear. Don't be so disturbed about something as if God's done something wrong. The reality in this equation is this, is that we've done something wrong. This is the church has done something wrong. The church has spent too much time caring about a bunch of nonsense that doesn't get anybody saved. God meant for us to be steely-eyed and focused on what really mattered. And I care about a bunch of nonsense. No opportunity for remission from sin exists apart from the truth of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. There's no opportunity. Now, <laughs> I know, for one thing, it's a repeat of something we've said a whole lot around here. But I want every, and I'm about to be finished here in just a few minutes. I'm nowhere, I'm nowhere near finished in your notes. We'll just pick up where we left off next week. But this is a good place to stop. I, I know this sounds tough, but here's the reality. Is it ought to be. COVID robbed us of something in this church. We had a very pronounced outward focus in this church, didn't we? And for more than a year of COVID, we spent our time worried about whether or not we had a mask on or not. Masks may or may not have saved human lives. Masks did not save eternally. They just didn't. Unfortunately, the mask that was on our face, really, to be honest with you, became around our deeds and around our hearts. We opted for safety. God means for the church to opt for daring. God means for the church to opt for losing their lives so that others might find eternal life. It's not just here. It's everywhere in the world. It's everywhere in the world the church turned inward. So, lastly, the gospel must be preached to the entire world for the final things to come. Now, this is a point I've made a lot, and I want everybody to remember this one. We, we talk about the end of all time, don't we? A lot. And some of us love to get into the, all of the different uh, wonderful doctrinal theological theories for how this is going to happen. 
In fact, it's usually mesmerizing for the general populace of the church that doesn't study these things all the time to find out there's so many different perspectives on it. So many ways of looking at it. But what is clear, more than clear, are our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. There in the Olivet Discourse, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Our commitment to preaching the gospel to the entire world is, is the condition, or part of that condition, that will hasten the return of Christ. Simply put, Jesus will not return. Will not return. Listen to me. Will not return. I don't care how much we long for it, because I long for it. He will not return until the gospel is preached to the entire world. I don't know what that means. Bro, I don't have I don't know what the def, what God's definition of preaching the gospel to the whole world is. I don't know. I know this. Biblically speaking, the words of Jesus are crystal clear. He will not return until the gospel is preached to the entire world. And if it takes 10,000 years for the church to get their act together, he will not return for 10,000 years. He will not. Because that's what Jesus says. All of the hopes of the church for cosmic mercy. Now, I think I've stated this before. I'm, I'm wrapping this up very, very quickly. Many times. I, I do want cosmic mercy. The world is such a terrible place. So many terrible things happen over and over and over again. So many things. Folks, I'm, I'm ready for that to be over, aren't you? I'm ready to have cried my last tear. I, I'm, I'm tired of, of anxiety and depression and nervousness and all those things that beset God's people. I'm tired of all that. I want it to be over. 